Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. How we doing? We good? I got, I got 42% more energy than you have today. How we doing? That's all right. That's all right. You'll wake up eventually. Hey, we're glad you're here today on this Sunday after Easter. We're thankful that you got up today and chose to be a part of what God is doing here at Canton Church. And just for a moment, let me just celebrate what God did last weekend here uh, at Canton Church. For the weekend, we had five worship opportunities from our Good Friday night of worship and communion to four Easter services Saturday and Sunday. Across the weekend, we had over 700 people here. Uh, And the most important number is that we had 39 people say yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolutely. We're so thankful for that. If you filled out a card, no matter which box you checked, uh, if you put a prayer request, just know I have read every single one of those cards. I've prayed over those cards. Our elders have prayed over the cards that you asked for elder prayer. Um, the confidential ones that we prayed this week as a staff for you and for those needs, I've prayed over those. Those are sitting in my office right now. I've got them sitting right there. I, I, honestly, it was, it was a moving experience for me to be able to see what God's doing, what you're trusting God for, and for you to help us to shape uh, what God will continue to do in these next few weeks and next few months. But I'm thankful that you're here today and that you've chosen to be a part of this uh, this day. Uh, really for us, over the next couple weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to answer some really difficult questions. Uh, All month long, I know we're about to enter into a new month, but for the next four weeks, for about a month together, uh, we're in this new series called You Asked For It. And really over these four weeks, some of these topics came from the surveys that you filled out last week. Others of them have come to us in a variety of other ways through uh, emails or or counseling sessions or just general questions. Uh, They've just come to us in a variety of ways. And so we kind of packaged all this together into one four-week series where we really look at these tough uh, questions to answer, the gray areas of faith, the gray areas of culture, and how do we find clarity and truth there. Uh, And so we're going to talk about God's will. How do you know what it is? How do you know what it's not? How do you know if you're in it? And how do you know if you miss it. Uh, So we'll talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about some family issues and relationship issues uh, that come up from time to time. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, who or what is it and what is it not and how does it work and can I get it and if I got it, how do I know if I got it and if I lost it and all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about prophecy. We're going to talk about end times. So we're going to pack a lot into these four weeks. I would encourage you not to miss any of these four weeks. And one of the really cool things about this series that we don't do on a regular basis, in just a minute, we go to the next screen, you'll see some scriptures and some things that happen, but at the bottom of kind of the rest of the slides for the rest of the day is a phone number that you can text additional questions to. So if throughout the message today you go, hey, you just said that, and I'm a little confused, I don't know what that means, you can text in. It's not to somebody's phone, even though you may see a phone or an iPad come up here in a minute, so they're not going to go, oh, I see you're asking that question. You're going to hell. They're not going to say that, I promise. (laughs) They will not do that. It comes into an app that we're using just to collect the text so that we can keep them all in one place, but keep you anonymous, confidential. So you can ask those questions. Maybe it has nothing to do with what I say, other than it generates another question or sparks something in you to try to figure that out. So you can ask those questions and as time permits at the end of the message today, we'll answer those questions. And so today what I thought we would do is that we would start to really find the foundation for the entire series. My hope and my goal for these four weeks is not that I get to stand here and give you my opinion about a lot of stuff. I have an opinion about everything in life, okay? So if you walk up to me in the lobby and go, Jeremy, what do you think? I will have an answer every single time. Like, what do you think about? Oh, yeah, I think this, I think that. Who do you think? I always have an opinion. It doesn't mean that I care about everything, but I have an opinion about everything. And so I don't want to just stand up here for four weeks and go, hey, thus saith Jeremy, right? 
What I want to do is I really want to ground this entire series in the Bible, right? Because my opinion will not get you anything. You take my opinion and 50 cents, you can buy yourself a Coke unless you're at one of those places that it now costs a million dollars. So for me, I want to make sure that it's not something that's worthless, but it's something that's valuable. So we're going to use God's word, the Bible, as the foundation for this series. So if we're going to do that, I thought we got to start week one with how do we know that the Bible's real? How do we know that the Bible can be trusted? What do you do with the parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand? What do you do with the parts of the Bible that seem to be in error or seem to be contradictory? What do you do with those parts of the Bible that are really difficult to read because they're, they kind of touch on sensitive topics, sensitive areas? In, in today's culture of political correctness and everybody being offended about everything, and some of them obviously rightly so, what do you do with those parts of the Bible that are offensive to me, to you, to us, and to the world? And so we're going to spend some time today really unpacking that as best we can. But you got to know that I love the Bible. I, I start from that position because I really do love the Bible. Now, all across today and for the next four weeks, you may hear me use a couple of phrases interchangeably, but I mean the same thing. When I talk about the Bible or I say God's word or I say scripture, I'm talking about the same thing. And for me, God's word, the Bible, has always been a huge part of, of my life because it was a huge part of my family's life. My parents both love the Bible. They, they taught us to love Scripture. My grandparents taught us to love Scripture. How many of you now or at some point in the past, you saw or you had in your house, your grandparents' house, somebody's house, like a big family Bible? Like it was huge. Like it took up like a pizza box size. Anybody? Yeah, so there's a bunch of us. In my great-grandparents' house, there was a Bible that was as big, I kid you not, as big as the coffee table in my current house. It was humongous. If you could lift it, which you couldn't until you were about 12, if you could lift it, it was like a big scene from like Willy Wonka. Everything was bigger than life. You could lift the pages and like flip them over and you had to move like four feet to the left to lay it down. Like it was huge. Well, here's what I know about the Bible. It is not for lack of accessibility that we don't really read the Bible a lot. Last June, I went with a group of pastors to Washington, D.C., and one of the, the main points of that trip was to visit the Museum of the Bible. It's 400,000 square feet, really right there in the downtown area of Washington, D.C., that's completely dedicated to the history and the application of God's Word. There are seven floors, and among those seven floors are historical data, archaeological data. There are present-day stories about the application of Scripture. There's even a restaurant on the top floor where you can eat meals kind of from biblical times. Thank God they don't have John the Baptist menu, you know, locusts and hunt. Okay, that's really funny. Nobody laughed in the first one either. I may have to cancel that for the 1130, but... No, it was, a, it was a great you know, experience to go to the restaurant, to see the data, to see like different versions of the Bible for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that they have there in, in, their, in their supply, in their, in their resources. It was incredible. And I love the Bible. But here's what I found in studying this week. 89% of American households have a Bible. That's way higher than I thought it was. I got to be honest. I thought it was a little lower than that. America's a big place now. Now, these statistics are only for America. It's a completely different reality when you get outside of the United States. But 89% of American households own a Bible. Now, here, here's how that's skewed, right? Because 9 out of 10 households own a Bible, but I also drive up another statistic because it says that the average household actually has four Bibles, well, I got more than four. Some of you do as well. Others of you, you've got one. Some of you may ha maybe don't have any at all. If you don't have a Bible, let me say right up front, we have a Bible available for free. Stop by the information center for you, for anybody. There's no questions asked. They'll just give you a Bible. But I own more than four. That's the average in the United States. 
If you go to my office right now, on the shelves, the bookshelves of my office, I counted them this morning just to confirm, I have 17 Bibles in my office. You go, well, that's, you know, okay, well, you're the preacher. You're supposed to have the Bibles, right? It's like a lawyer having law books. I don't know. I mean, I just, for me, I love the Bible, though. Not all of them are Bibles that I read every day. Today, I'm carrying with me my grandmother's Bible. It says Judith S. Isaacs. S stands for Simpson, her maiden name. I, I have her Bible with me today. I, I read this from time to time. When she passed away last year, I received one of the Bibles that she used at various points in her life. So there are other, there's some places here where I see handwritten notes. I see some underlines. I see some highlights. Last week on Easter, I brought my mom's Bible to the stage with me. Her birthday would have been the Friday of Good Friday. She passed away about eight years ago. I brought my mom's Bible. I have my grandfather's Bible in my office. I, I have other Bibles that I use for study. I have other Bibles that I read on a regular basis. I also have the Bible on every device that I own. There's 370 million unique devices that the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, have been downloaded to. And I'm about 10 of those 370, I think, in our family. Because I, I, I love the Bible. I love God's Word. I love to consume God's Word. So 89% of American households own a Bible. I skew the four, you know, the average owning four. I, I own more than four. But some of you maybe own somewhere around four if you put it all together. But it's not accessibility that's the problem. Because look at this number. 53% of the respondents in the survey that provided that top number have read less than a few stories of the Bible. Less than a few stories. Of that 53%, about 15% have never read any parts of the Bible. Maybe it's been read to them, told to them, but they have never actually personally read any part of the Bible for themselves. 53% have read less than a few stories. That's a sad reality for me because it's not about accessibility. It's that we don't engage the scripture, among the reasons that people don't read the Bible, 29% believe it to be outdated, bigoted, or harmful. 38% say that it's just a good history book. They don't even see the work of God at work in scripture for our lives. So let me tell you what we believe here at Canton Church about the Bible. We believe it to be God's word. I'll explain that in just a minute, even where we draw that phrase from. But we believe that it is God's word. We do believe that it is a historical book and that it has parts of the history of man in different places of the world. But we also believe that the history of man is interspersed there with the story of God. Scripture is compiled by 40 different authors who come together over the course of about 1,600 years to compile the 66 books that we have in the scriptures that we hold, true, uh, hold to for truth. So 40 authors, 1,600 years, 66 books that come together to be the Bible that you and I would hold and read in this setting. And when we talk about those 40 authors coming together, those 40 writers coming together, we believe that there is one story from the beginning to the end. From the beginning of the book of Genesis, I talked about this a little bit last week at Easter, but the beginning of the book of Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation process that God engaged in to bring forth everything that was created. Then Genesis 3 brings to us the fall of man, the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then from that point all the way to the end of the Bible, we see the separation from God that sin caused, and we see God beginning to reconcile man back to himself. All the way at the end of the book of Revelation, which I recognize Revelation is a tough book to read and really understand. But what you need to know is the book of Revelation is about kind of the final days that would come together so that God's plan for reconciliation would come to pass. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we see that God's ultimate plan of reconciliation is a reality. There is one story from the beginning to the end. Scholars would call that the meta-narrative of Scripture. There are many narratives, there are many stories, but the meta-narrative, the overarching story and narrative of Scripture is God reconciling man and woman back to 
himself. Here's what we see. This is probably the most famous verse about the scriptures itself. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, we could take those four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, and we could do a lot with them. But I really want to spend a couple of minutes here just talking about the idea of God-breathed. God, all scripture is God-breathed. What does that mean? Well, we understand in the creative process of Genesis 1 and 2 that God formed man from the dust of the earth and then he breathed life into him. And so if God breathed life into dirt to make man, I believe that God breathes life into words to make God's word, the scriptures, to be active and alive to us. It's not just words on a page. It's not just words on a screen. What separates the Bible from other texts that you may have access to is that it is God-breathed, meaning that it is alive and active in the lives that we lead. And so we believe it to be God-breathed. Now, how do you, when I say God-breathed, like what does that look like when you start talking about the idea that we know of at least 40 that are the authors of the scriptures? What you have is you have the Bible broken down into two segments. I don't want to insult your intelligence. We're just going to all start from the same base of knowledge here. The Bible is two different segments of the text. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is broken down into some other subcategories, subparts. You have the Pentateuch. You have those first five books of the Bible, which are the stories of Moses. We have the creation stories and really the formation of the story of the children of Israel, God's chosen people, as they're formed into a nation, into a people, and laws are established to help them to be set apart as they stand among the other nations that they would live among. Then after that, you have the formation of this nation really into a nation, and you begin to have judges, and you begin to have kings, and then eventually you have prophets that are speaking as the voice of God to his people. So you have the, the judges, and you have the kings, and then you have the prophets split up into two different categories. You have the major prophets and the minor prophets, and you don't have to get hung up on like, well, who's more important than the other? I don't know which prophet's better or which prophet's bigger. You really have just chunks of text. Jeremiah, Isaiah, these are big, major prophets. And then you have smaller prophets, things like Amos, books like Amos, where you, you just have smaller recordings of what's happening and what God is speaking to his people for specific periods of time. Now, the Old Testament is not written chronologically. So you don't go from Genesis to the end of the book of Malachi. What you actually have is a narrative that starts in Genesis and really goes to about the end of the story of Nehemiah. And the prophets, both major and minor, are kind of laid over top of some of those stories of the children of Israel. And so you begin to have the, the children of Israel hearing from the voice of God in various places along that story. But the narrative goes from Genesis really to about the end of the book of Nehemiah. One of the things that I love to do with my digital Bible is my Bible app. And on the Bible app that I have, there are reading plans. And one of the plans that I have done in the past, and I do on a semi-regular basis, is I read the Bible chronologically. So I'll start where it's beginning at the oldest text and working its way to the newest text, if you will, so that I can see how those stories play out. So I see some of the narrative, and then I see some of the prophets, and I see some of the things that God was saying to his people, and I see where the Psalms were written in light of the, the, the events that were taking place in some of the, the characters, the men and women of Scripture. And so then we get to what we see as what's called the intertestamental period. It's that period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament where God is seemingly silent before the Gospels of the New Testament where really the first spoken words are the angels that declare to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that Jesus is coming. 
And then the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, are the stories, the life, the ministry of Jesus Christ on the earth. And then Luke, who wrote the last of, of, the, the, of the Gospels that we have in the New Testament, he also wrote, uh, the, not the last, but the, the oldest, he, he wrote also the book of Acts. And so then we have Acts, which I have always called the linchpin of the New Testament, because it takes the life, the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, and it connects him to the, new, the early church there, the first century church. And now you have all these New Testament letters and epistles. You have the stories of the church being established in these various places. And you can see so much of that happening in the book of Acts. And then you come to Revelation, which is a big deal. Like you try to figure out what does Revelation mean. And when I read it, I don't know what it means. And now we're given tattoos on thighs and riding horses of different colors. And there's, there's bowls and there's, there's jars. And there, I don't know what to read. And is it real time? Is it figurative time? Is it happening? Is it not happening? Is it alluding to something? The answer to all of that is maybe, right? Because what we're trying to figure out is how many of these things are actual and literal in time and how many of these things overlay with a figurative amount of time so that we understand that ultimately God Stepping back into earth in physical form to take hold of the story again to reconcile man for one final time. That's the Bible. That's the meta narrative. That's how we believe God breathed is that God impressed upon these 40 authors, these 40 men, so that they could collect the stories and categorize those stories so that we would have the truth that we have in our Bible. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It's, it's different than a text that you would read in a textbook. It's different than another book that you might read. We understand that it all works together and it all sustains because it is God breathed. God impressed upon. He inspired men to write these words down. And when I read them, I recognize that it, God could have done it a lot of ways. He could have done like we did with Moses with the, the tablets as he gave the, the commandments. And he could have just sketched them out himself. He could have written with pen or paper or stone or whatever it is that he wanted to create in those moments. Or he could have said, write this exactly, and there are places that we see that written out. But there are other times that he allowed the personality of the author to be expressed so that we could see how God was working through man to help us to understand and contextualize the truths of God. We recognize so much about how God breathed into this process. So then it comes to the first question that I really want to answer today. How can we know that it's real? Like, how can we know that what the Bible claims about itself is true? Now, I would say right up front, I'm not an expert in this. I've done some research. I've tried to educate myself the best I can to answer this question as best that I can. The, the, the best person that I have a personal relationship with that speaks to this with a lot of validity is my pastor, Pastor Mark Walker. He was the senior pastor for us at Mount Perrin North and here at Canton Church the first couple years of our existence when we were a campus and Corey and I were here as the campus pastors. He's done a lot of different teaching about apologetics, defending the faith, defending the validity of Scripture. So I called him earlier in the week, and I was like, hey, I need your help. Uh, I'm preaching this Sunday about the Bible. He jumped in and said, that's a good thing to preach about. And I was like, hey, don't be a smart aleck. I called you. Um, <laughs> I don't work for him anymore, so I can, I can say those things. But uh, I said, hey, you know, I just, I, I, here's what I'm teaching on. Here's what I'm talking about this week. I would love to get any resources. He sent me some resources, sent me some pl places to go and read and do some things. And so I was thankful for that. But he, he speaks with a lot of credibility. Back if you go through our podcast, there's a couple of places that he spoke even here over the course of the last seven or eight years about some of these things. But here, here's the two questions that he started me with that I've heard him say in different ways, different places. He said, when you're talking about the validity of any text historically that claims to be nonfiction, it claims to be real, it claims to be facts, here's the questions that you have to ask. Do we have any original copies of the text? 
And then if we do not, which we do not have an original copy of the collection over 1,600 years of the text of the Bible. We don't have the original copy of the Bible. He said, if you don't have the original copy, then the next question is, how close in time proximity are the copies that you have? And so he, he sent me this graph, which I thought was really interesting. This is the, just talking about the New Testament for a second. New Testament manuscript evidence. And what you have here is you have the idea that this orange line tells you how many copies of the manuscript that we have. And the blue number, a part of that, the blue line, when it's bigger, that you can see there in context of the, the graph, is how many years from the original or from the event that is described is the earliest copy of the manuscript. So when you talk about Homer, his, his Iliad, it's 643 copies of the manuscript, but the closest copy that we have is 500 years after the original. You've got some of the other things. A name that you might recognize is Plato. We have seven copies of the manuscript of a famous, famous writer, but it was 1,200 years later that we've got that. But if you go just to the New Testament, we have 5,600 copies of some of those early manuscripts, and the earliest date of some of those manuscripts are just 25 years after the events that are described there in the text. And so when I look at this, and I look at other things, and we're going to provide a resource for you tomorrow through our website and our Facebook page. So if you're not following us, jump on there. Make sure you're, you've liked us on Facebook. But we're going to provide some resources with some of this kind of information tomorrow. And we'll do that each week of the series. But when I look at this, what I see is I see a lot of evidence. If you just take the faith piece out, I see a lot of evidence to the validity of Scripture. And not only that, I also see a lot of validity that the New Testament speaks about the Old Testament. When Jesus came, he said this in, uh, in Luke 24. At the in the beginning, at, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He was saying the whole Old Testament teaches you about me. So these New Testament writings even speak to the Old Testament. And then we have the validity of some of the things. And when I went to the museum of the Bible, I was actually able to look at some of the oldest texts some of the oldest artifacts that have been found to prove the validity of the text. So that's one question. How, how do we know that it's real? Here's another question that I, I get on a semi-regular basis, not a, not a super regular basis. Here's another question. What do we do with the errors? Like, if we don't have the original manuscript, like, how do we know it's right? Because there's some places that when I read one translation... It's different than another translation. How do, and sometimes even side by side, and you know, if somebody asked me after the first service today, they said, you know, what about that, that scripture where it says, you know, you can't even change a jot or a tittle. Like, what, what does that mean? How do, we, how do we do that? We start talking about translations. Well, what we, what we understand is anytime that I'm reading a text, I am already reading a translation of scripture because it was not written. I don't care what anybody told you as a child. It was not written in King James English. <laughs> Jesus did not speak in King James. I promise. I wasn't there, but some of y'all, no, I'm just kidding, y'all weren't there either. No, he didn't speak King James. So any English translation that you have is a translation, but there are some translations in the way that they translate it from that original text, whether that be Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, those translations, they have gone either word by word or phrase by phrase. So sometimes, if you think about how you even translate into another language that you might speak with friends or family members... Sometimes there are translations of things we say in English that just don't translate to another language currently. So sometimes when we're taking things from Greek, you can't do it in phrases. You've got to go word by word, which might alter a little bit of the way it reads, but it doesn't necessarily alter its meaning. But when we get to things like errors, here's the truth that I would say is important for all of us today. There are no obvious errors in Scripture that change theology. 
Now, there might be commas and periods. There might be different variations of ways that we translate words. But when you go back to the original text and when you go back to as many of those original manuscripts of the text that we have access to, there are no errors and no discrepancies that change what I believe about who God is and what God feels about me. And that's important. When I read through various places in the Bible, I might read, depending on the translation that I read, I might see, you know, some of the earliest manuscripts include this. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this in some of the notes or the commentaries that I would read. But even in some of those places, none of that changes what I believe about who God is. And here's what I would say is so important. I ask them to put this on the screen. Don't focus so much on the obscure that you lose focus on the obvious. So many of us are so concerned with trying to, you know, argue one little point, and we're actually missing the larger point. Like, we're trying to win a battle, and we're losing the war. And so I would say don't focus so much on the obscure that you lose focus of the obvious. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't study it as deeply as you possibly can. But as you study it, I believe that God's revelation, his, his helping you to understand so that you can apply, becomes more and more alive and active in your life. But I would start with some of the basic truths, understanding who God is and who God says you are, and begin at that place and then to dive a little further. So here's another question. What about those insensitive subjects? Like those, those parts of Scripture that are just really hard to understand and they're hard to explain. Like what do you do with the God of the Old Testament that always seems to be sending them to war and kill and eradicate all the people? And what do you do with the, you know, the stories about you know, all kinds of different sexual immorality and even godly people that had multiple wives and families and all the different dynamics there? And what do you do with all those things where it starts talking about slavery and it talks about homosexuality and it talks about all, like what do you do with that? Here's what I would say to you, as honestly as I can. You just go, ooh, man. That's tough. I said a couple weeks ago when I was preaching, like, there's some parts of Scripture I go, oh, man, God, could you have just written it and left that part out, please? But he didn't. So then the question becomes for me, what do I do with it? What do I do with it? If the meta narrative of Scripture is God reconciling man back to himself, God, help me understand how this applies to my life and to the larger story that you are writing through your word for my life and for the sake of every other human being that's ever lived, that is alive, and that will ever live. And one of, this is not exhaustive. So if you're like a Bible scholar, like you're going to say, oh man, you really dumbed that down. One of the filters that you can use as you try to understand some of these things is a filter that is described in three ways. It's understanding primarily the Old Testament, but even places of the New Testament. And it boils down to these three thoughts. Is this ceremonial, civil, or moral law? Is it ceremonial, civil, or moral law? And here's what I mean. There are places that you read. Again, I'll stay in the Old Testament for a second. There are places that you read where God is giving specific instructions to feasts and festivals and ceremonies and things that they should do. The pomp and circumstance of how he would like them to celebrate, to worship, or to interact with him and with one another. And so you and I may look at that and go, well, if, I, if I'm not having a grain offering, am I being disobedient? Well, if God said you should have a grain offering, then yes. But in the context of Scripture, a lot of times what we see is that God was establishing certain things for them so that they would be able to worship and trust and celebrate God. Other places we see civil law. God was establishing the children of Israel to be a people. They were not a people, and now they were a people. And as a part of that, he had to establish law. 
He had to establish, establish government for them because there were various laws around them among the nations and the people that they were living among. And so he had to establish, like, here's how you should live and here's how you should interact with one another. There were some civil laws. And so if you say, well, if I trip coming into the temple, the Canton church, do I have to kill a bird and pour all the blood out of it into another bowl so that I can dip the bird and let it loose in my field? No. Because what we said is that the New Testament says that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and so wherever there is sin and transgression, we go to Jesus instead of to the law that he established for those people. We see him as the fulfillment, the embodiment of that. But then there are moral laws. There are parts from the beginning to the end of Scripture that are what God is calling us to live and to be. And we start with Jesus there, the embodiment of who Jesus was. But even beyond the embodiment of who Jesus was, he also referenced some things from the Old Testament that they were supposed to adhere to. And he said, if you're so concerned with the law and you miss the larger truth of the love and the grace and the mercy of God, then you've missed the point. But there are some things that even if you don't bring the dead bird to the church, and, and please don't do that, by the way. Don't bring the dead bird to the church. Leave the dead bird at home. Do the sacrifice in your home. Just do that later, okay? But if you say, well, if I don't do that part, right, if I don't, if I don't, if I don't bring the dead bird to the church, it's probably still a, a good idea not to kill your brother, and not to covet your neighbor's possessions and not to lie and bear false witness and not to have other gods before Jehovah God. There, there are moral truths that are embodied in who Jesus is that he even claimed about the Old Testament that we should live and adhere to. And so these are places that we say, how, how, do, I, how do I interpret the scriptures? We also can't, and, and I didn't say this in the first service, but I want to say this. I just read an incredible book called David the Great by Mark Rutland. that talks about King David. He's, he's one of my favorite, I say characters, but men of the Bible. But reading this book, he makes a great statement early on in the book, and he reiterates it a couple of different places. He says, you cannot take pre-first century David and, and put him into the context of 21st century Christianity. Because there's messiness there. But in the context of what God was doing, we see this man after God's own heart that possessed so much of what God was trying to ascribe to him and to us about his worship and his lifestyle and the way that God used his imperfections for the purposes of God. But when you and I read it, we can only read it through the context of 21st century Christianity and 21st century culture, but we do an unfair uh, reading of God's word to try to take all of those things and go, well, because it doesn't fit in the 21st century, it doesn't fit. No, no, no. We just have to say, God, what is it that you would have me bring into my life today? It's all, all for teaching, rebuke, correction. It, it, it is all God-breathed. We don't just pick the parts we like, but we do ask God to help us to understand how to apply. So what should we do with the Bible? What should we do with the Bible? We should read it. That's pretty simple, right? We should just read it. Reading God's word will help you in relationship with God. Psalm 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, has a number of things to say about the love of God's word. This is what it says in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's active. It's alive. It helps me to know what to do, where to go, how to live. I love this. It talks in verse 9. It says this. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. We hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. If you go, man, I just don't know how to live better for God. I don't know how to live more for God. I don't know how that I, I just keep tripping up and tripping up and tripping up over the same stinking trap every time. Well, I don't want to simplify it too much, 
but I would just ask you how much of God's word is hidden in your heart? How much of the truth of who God is and what God is saying to you and what God is calling you to, how much of that is in your heart so that when temptation comes, when the enemy comes and he tries to snare you with the same things, that you can immediately speak the truths of God's word right back to it. If even the enemy knows who he is and trembles at his name, how much are we declaring the truths of who he is? So we read it. And we read it consistently. You know, my, my, I've referenced the digital Bible. I've got the Bible app on my phone. And uh, I, I read on a regular basis. I read uh, Bible reading plans that are available. There's hundreds and hundreds of plans. You can search by topic. You can search by the length of days. There's three-day plans, seven-day plans. There are relationships. There's marriage. I'm reading one right now on the one-year Bible. Every day there's a specific reading, an Old Testament, a New Testament, a Psalm, Proverbs. There's, I, I'm reading a lot. Now, I know you assume your pastor. I live in my prayer closet. I know that that's what you assume I do. That's the only thing I do, that and watch my kids play sports. But other than that, here's what the Bible app tells me. Today is day 118 of 2019. You go, oh my God, I've already forgot all my resolutions. That's okay. That's okay. 118. I have spent, according to the Bible app, I have spent 98 days in the Bible app. So I've missed 20. Some of you are like, oh, that's, I thought you'd be better than that. Just be careful. Pride comes before the fall. Be careful, okay? Don't, don't look at me that way. Don't judge me. But I try to spend time in God's word every day. I've missed some days. When we went to Russia for a variety of reasons, I wasn't able to read my Bible reading plan. And so when I got home, I was about eight days behind, so I had to catch up. So I read about two or three days at a time for about a week or so until I caught up and was able to kind of catch back up. I try to read. I try to apply it, consistently staying in God's Word so that God would speak to me. And there are things that I've read dozens of times, maybe even hundreds of times. And I read it some random Tuesday, and I, it's like the light comes on, and I'm like, oh, that's what that means. Oh, that's what you're saying, God. Thank you so much for revealing. It's active. It's alive. It's God breathed. It's not just an ancient text. It's not stale. And you go, well, I, I don't know how to do that. Because like when I read, I do the helicopter reading, you know, the parachute reading. You just kind of, you go, Lord, I want to read the Bible. What does it say here? Nope, that doesn't help me at all. I'm done. Right? <laughs> Nobody's ever done that? Okay, just me. No, you know what I do? I go, I want to stay consistently in your word. Whether I read it, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and Psalm and a Proverb, or whether I read a few verses or a chapter a day, maybe you just start by reading the proverb of the day for the day month it is, right? So like today's the, what's today? The 28th, go read Proverbs 28. Tomorrow's the 29th, read Proverbs 29. Because there's this amazing reality, like every month you could just be reading a proverb for that day, right? Maybe you just start by reading the gospel. Start with the gospel of John and just start reading something that really begins to open up the truths of who God is and you read it consistently. That's what I would tell you. Read it and read it consistently. And here, here's, I can't make you a promise. It's not my word. I'm not the one to make the promises. But if I could make a promise, here's what I'd say. If you would attempt to read the Bible more this year than you did last year, this year would be better than it was last year. That's what I believe. I'm not saying he's a genie in a bottle granting you a bunch of wishes. I'm saying if you would begin to immerse yourself in God's word, I believe it would change your life. And here's the way I would put it. I asked him to put it on the screen so you could see it. As I immerse myself in scripture, I become less concerned with its validity and more concerned with its application in my life. I have less questions about what it is and what it's not and more questions like, God, what are you saying to me? 
God, what are you speaking to me? God, how can I apply this? How can I be more like you? How can I embody more of who you are in my life? God, help me to do that. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. If you would say to me today, Jeremy, for me, I recognize as you're talking about it being active and alive and him revealing himself and him having a plan, I just, I'm not living that plan. I've not allowed him to forgive my sins and to be my Lord and Savior. And I, I want today for that revelation to become a reality. If that's you with nobody looking around, if you would just say, I want him to forgive my sins and be the Lord of my life, would you lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. You can put it right down. Thank you so much. Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, I want a passion for God's word like never before. I want to read the Bible. I want, when I read it, to understand it better, and I want to apply it to my life. And every day, I want to, I want to have a hunger and a thirst to read God's word. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? Let's pray together. God, I, I thank you for the hands that were lifted today. I thank you for those who are trusting you with salvation to forgive their sins and to lead and guide their lives from this moment forward. And God, I ask you to forgive their sins. Do what only you can do and change their eternity forever. God, I pray now for every hand that was lifted to say, give me a hunger for your word, God. I believe you will do it. And God, give us the strength. Give us the discernment as we read it to know how to apply it, to cut out distractions, maybe to set a goal to read it first thing in the morning before we do anything else, or maybe the last thing at night, or to do it over our lunch. God, when we miss a day, don't let us feel ashamed and guilty, and we would just pick it back up the next day. God, help us to, to find a way to stay in your word consistently. And God, let us begin to consume it so that it consumes us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.